Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Tonight on The Readout. Remind us that freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. We'll do it. President Biden's bold and historic visit to Kyiv, coming at the end of the first year of Putin's war of aggression. Also tonight, Fox's own lawyers argue that viewers should not believe what Tucker Carlson says. Now, Kevin McCarthy has given Tucker exclusive access to 41,000 hours of January 6th security footage so that Tucker can feed his audience more January 6th disinformation. Plus, the final days of a good and decent human being as Jimmy Carter, the 39th president of the United States, begins hospice care. And we begin the readout tonight with President's Day, a federal holiday that technically only celebrates the birthday of America's first president, George Washington, which is why it's written with an apostrophe S. America's 46th president, Joe Biden, spent the wee morning hours of this President's Day pulling off an unprecedented visit to Ukraine, something the White House spent months planning. Biden's visit to Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital, was both a highly symbolic demonstration of solidarity with Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, and with the Ukrainian people. And it was historic. The surprise visit was the first time in modern history that a U.S. commander-in-chief visited a war zone where the U.S. or its allies did not control the airspace and where there are no American troops on the ground. It was a highly guarded and grueling trip that included a 10-hour train ride for the famously train-loving Biden into the heart of the country. In Kyiv, President, the president insisted that the U.S. will remain steadfast in its support of Ukraine and announced an additional aid package. Together, we've committed nearly 700 tanks and thousands of armored vehicles, 1,000 artillery systems, more than 2 million rounds of artillery ammunition, more than 50 advanced launch rocket systems, anti-ship and air defense systems, all defend you to defend Ukraine. And that doesn't count the other half a billion dollars we're going to be we're announcing with you today and tomorrow. The American president was one of the last Western leaders to make this journey. President Zelensky, sitting shoulder to shoulder with Biden, praised the trip as historic, timely and brave. Thank you very much for coming, Mr. President. That is a huge moment of supporting the Ukraine. Biden's visit came just two days after Vice President Harris attended the annual Munich Security Conference in Germany and announced that the U.S. had determined that Russia has committed war crimes against humanity and crimes against humanity during its now year-long invasion of Ukraine. I say to all those who have perpetrated these crimes and 
to their superiors who are complicit in these crimes, you will be held to account. As the president and vice president affirmed the United States' commitment to Ukraine's freedom and to the NATO alliance, the pro-Putin faction in America held a weekend rally, complete with a pro-Russia with pro-Russia demagoguing. The rage against the war machine rally went about how you'd expect, Russian flag and all. This proxy war that we're fighting against Russia right now could turn at any moment into a direct conflict between the United States, NATO, and Russia. I think that uh, they, we can deal with the war issue very simply. And believe me, and I'll explain it more why I believe this, that the answer is, and the Fed. You, and Anthony Blinken, and Victoria Newland, and Jake Sullivan, and the rest of the warmongering neocons at the heart of government here in Washington, along with the vassal states in NATO, are the principal provocateurs. Yes, that, that was Ron Paul and that was Roger Waters. Wow. Meanwhile, over on Fox News, clearly showing zero signs of embarrassment or self-reflection after having been exposed as knowingly lying to their audience about the 2020 election, things went about how you'd expect as well. We've entered into this Mad Max era of foreign policy because we have no leadership at the White House. And of course, Putin has taken advantage of this. China's eyed Taiwan. And then, you know, we've pushed them closer together. But, you know, I think the, the question for a lot of people of the audience is how long does this go on? What does winning look like? Hmm. Over in Congress, the MAGA party led by Marjorie Taylor Greene continued not to care about Ukraine's independence and what that might mean for the rest of the world. She also tweeted a call for parts of the U.S. to secede from the union. A little throwback to her state and region's Confederate past. Joining me now from Kiev is Ali Velshi, MSNBC correspondent and host of Velshi. Also joining me, Michael Beschloss, NBC News presidential historian. Um, both of you good friends of the show and of mine. And Ali, I do want to start with you and just, I'm going to join Nicole Wallace. I, I pretty much just agree with whatever Nicole Wallace says anyway, but I want to also join her in, in um, you know, commending your incredible and co coverage. It's been so personal um, and so moving. And, you know, because I know that you have made a lot of friends there and talked to a lot of people, I wonder if you could just give us a sense of how the president of the United States visiting today, how did that read in Kiev to folks you spoke with? Well, thank you, first of all, for uh, saying that. And there's a sort of piece of my heart that's here in Ukraine after the time that I spent meeting these amazing, resilient people. And I, I guess, as I was saying to Nicole earlier, you know, Ukraine's been fighting this war with one hand tied behind their back, or as I said earlier, a, a quarter tank of gas. And, and really in the last six weeks or so, the world took stock of this and said, maybe we need to think about everything we're prepared to give Ukraine and give it to them now, because if they lose their footing at this point in winter, where Russian missiles and rockets rain down on critical infrastructure and takes the power out, uh, you know, makes people cold and, 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 and increases suffering. If they lose their footing now, this thing could end. And the president of Poland, who's going to be speaking about this tomorrow with President Biden, says if this thing is still going on a year from now, Russia may become emboldened. So when you said, what does victory look like? 
Victory looks like not having Kyiv taken in three days, which is what mm. Vladimir Putin planned to do one year ago. Victory looks like the fact that they are still fighting. Vic- Russia has not taken another piece of land, uh, you know, more land since October, which is why we're all very closely watching what happens this week. This was always going to be a kinetic and active week here in in uh, in Ukraine, because by the end of the week, Vladimir Putin has to have something to show for a year yeah. of fighting in this place. And he doesn't. So now he's had a, a sharp poke in the eye with with Joe Biden standing right here with the president of Ukraine today. This is this is a meaningful and historic trip. You know, and, um, you know, Michael, it's it's a trip that could not be the more opposite of the previous president who treated Volodymyr Zelensky with disdain uh, and tried to bribe him and extort him. Um, But, you know, I, I wonder if you could kind of give us the step back on what this trip means not just for the Ukrainian president, but for the American one. You know, Joe Biden has put a lot of the stake in his presidency into the defense of democracy around the world. Um, this feels like the most sort of potent message in that regard. Yeah, I think what Biden did today goes straight through two centuries of proud American history. Uh, just what you said earlier, uh, Joy, presidents, you know, let's let's say that LBJ and Nixon used to go to Vietnam, but they'd appear on an American air base that was pretty well controlled. To find a, a day of this kind of presidential bravery in a war zone, you've got to go all the way back to 1864, July, when Abraham Lincoln, as president, went to see Confederate soldiers who were firing on Washington, D.C., uh, on the brink of taking it over. And literally, uh, Lincoln got up and some guy behind him who didn't know it was the president said, get down, you fool. And and Lincoln turned around and I wouldn't have liked to be that guy seeing the president's face of of disdain uh, asking who the guy was. But Lincoln was there to show determination to see the Civil War through. 1814, James Madison as president, this is how rare this is, went to Bladensburg, Maryland, uh, a an area that we both know pretty well, Joy. Uh, And there was a battle of Bladensburg. The Brits were just about to conquer Washington, D.C., just as they were uh, as an enemy soldier, group of enemy soldiers was in 1864. So James Madison went on the battlefield and said, you know, I'm president. I'm showing how determined we are to resist the Brits. Goes back to one other thing. George Washington in 1754, before he was president, long before, was in the French and Indian War, of all things, and he was in danger of being killed himself. He wrote to his brother, the bullets whistled past me, and I found something charming in the sound. That's what presidential bravery in wartime is. Uh, Joe Biden goes all the way back to that. That is incredible. We, this is why we love to have you on. This is like, it's like the best dinner party ever. We hear all these wonderful stories, um, from, uh, from, from history. And Ali, I mean, this was to the point that Michael just made. I mean, this was a trip that was with tremendous risks. You know, the, you know, we are not obviously at war oh. with Russia, but had anything happened to that train or had he flown in or anything, there were deconfliction, uh, procedures that were taken where this, the, the sort of back channels had to be issued, um, to make sure that, that President Biden was safe. Can you talk a little bit about the complexity of getting yeah. this particular world leader into Kyiv. 
Well, I, I encourage everybody to read the accounts of it that were given by the pool uh, reporters who were on it, because it reads like a, a, a wartime thriller, which is uh, remarkable. First of all, Joe Biden might be the only guy with a smile on his face like that after getting off a 10 hour train ride because he really likes the train. But but it right. remarkable. I mean, got on this train. You say deconfliction. It's really important because there, there's people who are saying, well, by telling the Russians a couple hours earlier that he was going to be in, in Ukraine, wouldn't that actually uh, maybe cause more problems? And it's well, the Russians, I don't think, are prepared to, to, to do what would be done by attacking the president of the United States on Ukrainian soil. There were American planes and NATO planes uh, right on the border of Ukraine and Poland. It's unsafe for American or NATO planes to come into Ukraine because they could be targeted. But they were ready to go. They were in the air if anything went wrong. But I'm telling you, it was wild. They were on this train. Everybody knows where the train line goes. It pulls into a station here in Kiev. There was a convoy that came here. It was a very small footprint that was with uh, President Biden. Of course, once he's in Kiev, there are Ukrainian soldiers and there was security that joined that train. The train stopped a few times in the 10-hour journey and we know that at least one time it was to add more local security, more people might meet military members. But that was a great risk. And by the way, we knew that Joe Biden was going to Poland. Now he's in Poland on exactly the same schedule. So he's added, I don't know, 40 hours to his schedule and he's still going to go to Poland and he's still going to deliver a speech tomorrow in which he commits uh, American resources and NATO resources to the defend of, defense of Ukraine. But this is truly, uh, if you watched today, you watched history. Yeah, if you're concerned about Joe Biden's age, you, you, you probably don't know Joe Biden because he's, yeah, he's a right, fairly determined right. character. He's going to do what he wants to do and needs to do. And, and Michael I got tired that, reading about what he's done. <laughs> and I love trains. I'm not sure <laughs> right. I can do 10 hours, yeah. though. Um, you know, yeah. Michael, the, um, let's talk about Vladimir Putin, though, because he also is an historic figure in the opposite direction here. He's going to give his own address. Um, he has to somehow account for this year of failure. Um, as Ali's been doing brilliant reporting on, the people of Ukraine are yes, not has. going down. They are not going to allow him to absorb them, period. Um, but what he's doing, some of the things that Putin is doing, I mean, Russian tr- troops are kidnapping Ukrainian children, carting 18 to infants back over the border, uh, to force them into re-education camps. These are some of the war crimes, essentially stealing them and trying to re-educate them as Russians. This is barbaric on a level that feels historic to me. Sure is. And the vice president talked about that when she was in Munich the other day, the fact that there may be an effort to prosecute members of the Russian administration for that. And that has a big historical lineage, too. Crimes against humanity is a term that was used even in the 1700s to describe European atrocities in Africa and also slavery all the way up to the present time. You know, what we're doing in Ukraine, we Americans, yes, we're trying to protect Ukraine. Yes, we love a fellow democracy. But there's something larger here, and that is that if a powerful country like Russia can just grab another country because it feels like it and attack it and have no penalty, that's going to happen all over the world. So another part of that is not only to help the Ukrainians in their noble struggle against the Russians, but also send a message to leaders around the world You do this in other countries, not only might you lose the war as Russians might in Ukraine, but also you may be prosecuted in an international criminal court and you could be sent to prison or worse.
Yeah, indeed. This is why you all should have, if you haven't read Presidents of War, you need to read it. It's, it's really good. It's really worth reading. Um, Ali Velshi, I know you're going to be hosting at eight o'clock. We will be watching, uh, because Can't we watch wait. everything that you do. You're brilliant. Thank you so much. And the wonderful and brilliant Michael Beschloss. Thank you both, my friends. Appreciate Thank you. you. And up, cheers. And up next on the readout, Speaker Kevin McCarthy gives Putin and the insurrectionist chief propagandist Tucker Carlson exclusive, exclusive access to a treasure trove of January 6th footage so he can, I don't know, like OJ before him, find the real killer or whatever. The readout continues after this. If there was one main takeaway from last week's release of court filings from Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit against Fox News, it's that many of the hosts on that network are conscious and remorseless liars. Shocking, I know. Remember, Fox's own lawyers have argued that you should not believe the words coming out of the mouth of their top-rated primetime host, Tucker Carlson. So it ought to concern you that, as we learned today, nominal House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has decided to give Tucker exclusive access to more than 40,000 hours of Capitol surveillance footage from the January 6th insurrection. This is Kevin fulfilling a promise that he made to the extreme far-right members of his caucus who demanded the footage as a condition of eventually supporting him for speaker, 15 votes in. And beyond the quizzling nature of the gift to the far-right, let's, let's not forget that the person who now has exclusive access to this footage has described January 6th this way. Of all the things that January 6th was, it was definitely not a violent terrorist attack. It wasn't an insurrection. An outbreak of mob violence, a forgettably minor outbreak by recent standards. You see people walking around and taking pictures. They don't look like terrorists, they look like tourists. And if you think Tucker and his team will use this content honestly, well, we have a bridge to sell you. It's in Brooklyn, it's beautiful. But there is a bigger issue here. The Justice Department and Capitol Police had previously pushed back on the release of this footage as a security risk, as it would include things like where safe rooms and security cameras are located. Now, we don't know what Tucker will choose to show, but we do know who will be watching. So giving him, of all people, free reign over such footage cannot be in America's best interests. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, who is a member of the January 6th Select Committee. Congressman, thank you for being here. I mean, I, I will go on. This is a man who made an entire documentary called Patriot Purge, in which he alleged that January 6th was a false flag. He, it was, it's been called deranged by Rolling Stone. Um, it's, it's pushed baseless conspiracy theories, this thing that he created. Off the rails, NPR has called it. The only expectation I can have is that he's going to use this footage, comb through it and create some sort of alternate narrative January 6th. Can you talk about you as somebody who was on the January 6th committee? How do you feel about that? And what do you fear based on what he's going to do? Well, Joy, thank you. Of course, um, we spent a year and a half studying this and we found no evidence of Antifa's involvement at all. No evidence of this being a false flag operation. But even if you're uh, paranoid and watching Fox News all day. You don't have to believe us. Just believe what Kevin McCarthy said on January 6th himself to Donald Trump when Donald Trump tried to float that to Kevin McCarthy when he called him desperate, saying, call off the dogs. And uh, Trump told him, oh, these aren't our people. This is Antifa. And McCarthy said, no, they're right here in my office. These are your people, Mr. President. And that prompted uh, the reply from Trump to the effect of, well, maybe they just 
care a little bit more about a stolen election than you do, Kevin. Look, all of this is not in search of the truth with Kevin McCarthy or with Tucker Carlson. It's in search of a conspiracy theory. It's in search of corroborating disinformation and propaganda. And we know that from his three-part miniseries that he put together, Patriot Purge, which asserted that it was a false flag operation run by Antifa and the FBI. But we found no evidence of that. Our bipartisan committee that operated for more than a year and a half. So really what it demonstrates is the absolute stranglehold that the MAGA right, that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates are exercising over Kevin McCarthy now as they work overtime to try to put Donald Trump back in office. Well, they, they've also said people like Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene that the purpose of having this footage that they're celebrating is that they want to help clear people who are charged with crimes for having broken into the Capitol. They've all tweeted something to that effect, Gosar, Gates and Greene. Is there is it, are we in danger of not just that, of people of them trying to twist this footage, cut little pieces of it that they think will help criminals get out of jail or get out of trouble. But also, I'm concerned that these are the people that the Russians listen to, including Tucker, that he can put on something that is false, not real, but that is very useful to our enemies, including knowing where the security cameras are on Capitol Hill. Well, look, Tucker Carlson is a pro-Putin, pro-Orban, pro-autocrat, propagandist. So while we've got the president of the United States over in Ukraine expressing solidarity with the forces of democratic freedom, Kevin McCarthy is releasing these tapes to one network, not making it public for everybody, not giving it to CNN and MSNBC and the New York Times, Washington Post, giving it to Fox News and to Tucker Carlson so he can forward his propaganda theories. And as you say, this is a serious security risk. I mean, The reason, you know, there's thousands of hours of footage that are out there already, but the reason all of it wasn't released is precisely because it lays out floor design, it lays out evacuation routes, it lays out where the vice president went, it lays out where senior members of Congress were evacuated and so on. So I hope that Kevin McCarthy at least has planned for that. But at this point, since he's made it available to one network, he may as well make it available to all networks, because we know, as you suggest, they're going to be cherry picking it in order to, you know, corroborate uh, however they can their absurd conspiracy theories embodied in the Patriot Purge series. One can only hope that all of the networks, including this one, will insist that everyone get it, because I've never heard of one network getting exclusive access to what is essentially government information. If Yeah, if you're going to give it out, give it to everyone. But it, it concerns I mean, that me. really is out of Putin's playbook. You, you pick it is. your oh, propaganda mouthpiece and you give it to them. Yeah, uh, it, right out of Putin's playbook. Uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you. Thank you very much. Happy President's Day. Thank you for you being bet. here. Still ahead, Jimmy Carter's church asks for America's prayers as the former president enters hospice care at 98 years old. A look back at his remarkable life in presidency next. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. 
And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. On this President's Day holiday, well wishes are pouring in for the American president with the greatest post-presidency of them all. It was announced over the weekend that Jimmy Carter is now under hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia, at the age of 98. A true man of the people, the peanut farmer turned politician dedicated his life to service, including his post-presidential work with the Carter Center, advancing democracy, social justice, human rights and peace, which contributed to him earning the 2002 Nobel Peace Prize. In nearly 40 years as a hands-on volunteer building affordable housing with Habitat for Humanity. The longest living president served just one tumultuous term, despite major accomplishments, including his central role negotiating the Camp David Accords between Egypt and Israel, which the Nobel Committee said was, in itself, a great enough achievement to earn the Peace Prize. President Biden posted a heartfelt message saying he and First Lady Jill are praying for Carter, wife Rosalind, and his family. And on Instagram, former Obama White House photographer Pete Souza shared a snap of the President's Club, every living former president, minus the one who incited an insurrection. Joining me now is former Senator Doug Jones of Alabama, who is currently a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Senator Jones began his political career as a staff counsel to Alabama Senator Hal Heflin during the Carter administration. And we have a photo. We're going to embarrass you. We're going to show young you. Let's let's put it up. This is there. There you are. Uh, talk a little bit about this president, uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, a Southern governor turned president and somebody who I understand had some influence on you. Well, Joy, that's absolutely right. But they didn't tell me you were going to show that picture. OK, uh, that <laughs> we never tell you there. in advance, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, look, to, to me, uh, we, we learn and we know so much about Jimmy Carter and his presidency and the ups and downs of his presidency, but clearly the post presidency. But the thing that I like to remember most about Jimmy Carter is his humanity and his his record on civil rights. He was a New South governor. Uh, at a time when we were trying to turn the page on Jim Crow in the South. He got defeated by a segregationist in 1966, but did not let that deter him and won the governorship in 1970 and really led the nation, a, a Southern governor leading the nation for civil rights and civil liberties and social justice, appointing uh, African-Americans to boards and agencies, both as governor and president. That had never been done before. He, the first two black federal judges in Alabama were appointed by Jimmy Carter. And in fact, we still only have mm. to in Alabama. So it's a, a, a remarkable accomplishment for those days that I think we ought to really, truly reflect on today, because some of those pages, Joy, as you know, some of those pages have flipped back over and yeah. we got to make sure that we go forward. 
Yeah, my, my, my mom uh, got her naturalization in time to vote for Jimmy Carter for re-election. Uh, she didn't live long enough to see Barack Obama, but he was her favorite president. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. You talked about his civil rights, uh, you know, his strength on civil rights. I feel like Jimmy Carter was our most really, truly Christian president in the sense that he really lived the creed. I mean, he for, pushed to desegregate his Plains Georgia church when, uh, you know, the ushers would not seat a black man in his church. He fought back against that. And he spoke about the role of women in the church and said the Southern Baptists were wrong to not allow women to have positions of leadership in the church, even eventually trying to form his own. He and his wife, Rosalind, creating their own sort of, you know, sort of version of the Southern Baptist Convention because he just didn't, he didn't agree. You know, in this era where you have Christian nationalism that is so cruel, talk about the legacy of a man who does Christian, Christianity right. Well, you know what, Joy, it's a cliche, but he practiced what he preached. And he preached every Sunday at that little church in Plains, Georgia. And he preached love and he preached equality and he preached reconciliation and he lived it. In those days, it was it, people were a little bit taken aback with his uh, faith that he so uh, openly expressed during his public career uh, as a born again Christian in those days. And today it's called evangelical, but they, they you really can't compare. Evangelical today is more of a political term. They don't yeah. practice what uh, they actually preach, and that is that unconditional love, that that uh, uh, equal justice uh, and and civil rights that Jimmy Carter lived every day, and that is, I think, is the true strength of his character, and yeah. it is the strength of his public service. And he's a public servant, as you said, in the finest sense of the word, and I always has been. I love the story of uh, people who went to the Plains, Georgia church, you know, in, in, his, in the last couple of years and went and saw this little guy gardening and were like, hey, isn't that where President Carter goes to church? And he turns around and it's Jimmy Carter. He's like, yes, it is. I mean, he's such a regular, ordinary guy. He did express concern and he has expressed concern in recent years over the shift in our country toward authoritarianism, particularly due to Donald Trump. Um, you know, as he is in hospice care, we're trying to give him his flowers right now while he can hopefully receive them. You know, talk a little bit about his ongoing push for democracy. Jimmy Carter moved from civil rights to human rights into the greater democracy uh, and experiment that we have in this country. What he has seen, is, as you said, he was a man of the people. Well, the people are the ones who are supposed to be in charge of this country. He never lost sight of that, that he was just the servant uh, of the people. And what he sees is now people, uh, public officials, whether it's Trump, whether it's DeSantis, whether it's others in that MAGA faction of the Republican Party, trying to divide people as yeah. opposed to unify people. Jimmy Carter had his moments of, of uh, where he did not unify, but at the mm -hmm. same time, most of everything he did was trying to be bring people together from all walks of life. And he truly believes in people and the control of this government in the yeah. people's hands, not autocrats. Yeah. I, and I have to tell you one more story. My, my mom got solar panels on our house because Jimmy Carter put solar camp panels on the White House. And she was very, you know, she, she thought this is the right thing to do. If we listen to him, we'd be a lot further when it comes to cli the climate crisis. We should listen to him. Absolutely. Uh, way ahead of his day. Way ahead of his time. Former Senator Doug Jones, thank you very much. We appreciate you. Up next, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis takes his anti-woke campaign on the road, but encounters pushback on his ultra-conservative agenda from some surprising sources. We will tell you what those are when we come back.
Today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis crossed state lines to tout his anti-woke agenda at a pro-law enforcement rally in the New York suburbs of Staten Island. It's his first stop on a three-state tour of blue cities. Why is crime a big issue in New York or Chicago or all these other places? The reason why you have what you have in some of these other jurisdictions is because they're putting woke ideology ahead of your safety. We fight the woke when they go after our law enforcement. We do not surrender to the woke mob. Our state is where woke goes to die. You know it. We know it. That this whole war against wokeness is really a war against freedom. And you know what? Some conservatives and libertarians know it, too. I'm number one in personal freedoms, right? I'm sorry, Ron, you're number two. I'm a f- principled free market conservative, right? Mm-hmm. I, for others out there that think that the government should be penalizing your business because they disagree with you politically, that isn't very conservative. DeSantis is always talking about, uh, you know, he was not, not demanding that businesses do things, but he was, you know, telling the cruise lines what they had to do. DeSantis is raising his profile every single week. He is putting himself in a better position to potentially win the presidency. And he is doing it through indiscriminate use of state power. What's been a problem for Florida is now a problem for America. It isn't just about the cruise ship companies or Disney or even your woke gas stove. DeSantis is determined to stamp out intellectual freedom, and it's causing other red states to scrutinize AP black studies. He's also threatening to withdraw state support for advanced placement courses altogether. The Miami Herald reports that top Florida officials are exploring alternatives to the College Board, meeting with the founder of an exam called the Classic Learning Test. Supporters of the exam say it focuses on the, quote, great classical and Christian tradition and the, quote, centrality of the Western tradition. Pretty much on brand for DeSantis, who clearly wants to be president and who is on tour to signal to the nation how he would govern. And that is by replacing a multitude of ideas with the one idea he holds dear, the centrality of white Christian thought. And who, let's be clear, is using woke to mean any notion that brown, black, LGBTQ people and women are citizens rather than subjects. Who, whether they live in red states or blue states, would in his American dream be forced to shut up and do, think, read and say only what Ron DeSantis tells them to. Up next, and this is going to be fun. We are celebrating visionary black fashion, past, present and future. A fabulous take on Black History Month that's still legal in Florida, at least for now. That's next. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. 
Well, today for Black History Month, we wanted to do something a little bit different and focus on the enormous impact that black Americans have had on the history of American fashion. Starting with the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s, where the iconic flapper look was originally worn by black artists like Josephine Baker. And jazz musicians like Louis Armstrong cemented the zoot suit as a male fashion staple in the 1940s. It was a black woman, Zelda Valdez, who created the original Playboy bunny costume. And a black woman, Anne Lowe, who designed Jackie Kennedy's iconic wedding dress, though she didn't get the credit at the time, with the first lady referring to her simply as a colored dressmaker. Designer Stephen Barrows helped usher in the disco era with his bold designs. Dapper Dan was one of the creators of luxury streetwear, popularized by hip-hop artists in the 1980s and 90s. And more recently, politicians like Vice President Harris and former First Lady Michelle Obama have made it a point to boost black designers, with Mrs. Obama wearing a Sergio Hudson ensemble to President Biden's inauguration. Joining me now is fashion designer Sergio Hudson, Omar Salam, fashion designer and founder and creative director of Sukena, and Jay Manuel, TV host, makeup artist, and former creative director of America's Next Top Model, one of my favorite binges of all time. Thank you all for being here. I really appreciate you. I have to go to you first, Sergio. Michelle Obama was such an icon in so many ways, but she really stood out for the way she dressed. Talk a little bit about dressing Michelle Obama. I think um, definitely dressing Michelle Obama, of course, was the honor of a lifetime. And working with her stylist, Meredith Coop, she's like a really good friend and we kind of just vibe. So actually, we I had dressed her a couple of times before that inauguration and she called me because they work really f- far in advance and they're very organized, which is very uncommon for that <laughs> world. Um, so I had made the outfit like two months before inauguration because she was going on a month vacation. Yeah. And so I kind of forgot about it. And then on that day, we got the call. You know, she's wearing it. And it was like history because I really wasn't expecting. It was just a look from my collection that we turned into pants. Right. You know, it was just very much simple. So it was definitely fate. But she just likes to look good. Yeah. And she likes to support. Well, I mean, first ladies in fashion, I can tell you, by the way, I was furiously texting Bebby Smith. Who made that? Who made that? I need to know who made that. And she was the one who hit me to the one that you were the one that made it. But Jay, I want to go to you on the to wheel it back because, you know, first ladies, you know, were the sort of fashion icon, Mm -hmm. starting with Jackie O. But a lot of people didn't realize that was a black designer. And then you go even further back. A lot of the kind of iconic looks and styles from the flapper era, even before that, were down to black people. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. We talk about the, the contribution of black culture and, and we call it like that black aesthetic in fashion. It's been around for so long. Yeah. And, you know, I, my mind is kind of blown when we just think about, oh, do we have to think about this? No, you really don't have to because it's always been there. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think most people don't realize. But then there are collections like one of the most celebrated Dior collections, which you think about the John Galliano did with the Maasai and the Victorian look. Yeah. And And, you know, some people at the time were saying, oh, is that cultural appropriation? No, I felt it was something somewhat of a celebration. It was like melding these two cultures together and and really preserving the the, the colors and the textures that the Maasai had worked on for years. And so that was like, I think, something that was very demonstrative of like showing how two cultures can come together. But really, when it comes to fashion, you brought up Dapper Dan. Mm -hmm. You know, I could talk about this forever, so I'm just going to just keep going. But 
you know, with Dapper Dan, I kind of feel like, because at that time, as a makeup artist, I was working with so many stylists like yeah. June Ambrose. Yeah. And, you know, and she was like in charge of creating these looks for Jay-Z, Missy Elliott, et cetera. And we talk about what Dapper Dan was doing. And, you know, then there was that famous class action suit, which we don't need to get into right now, but yeah. that kind of stopped down this kind of luxury street fashion. I mean, you guys all know all about this. Yeah. And then the main legacy houses started doing this kind of logo fashion, which to this day is what sells in the stores. We were just talking about Gucci. What do people go in for? All the logo wear. That's right. They want that Gucci belt. And and, you know, Omar, I mean, the, the, there has been this question of appropriation because designers like yourself who were in the major houses, who worked for the major houses and then broke out of it. Talk a little bit about how the major designers have appropriated the looks that come not just from African-Americans, but from black folks all around the world, from Africa, from the U.S., from the U.S., from everywhere. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I think when we think fashion, we tend to think that um, all the focus tend to be on the creative mm-hmm. when in reality it's a business that whether you are dancing in tight dresses, getting married in white, um, at the pupil wearing long clothes, what, you realize that fashion really is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, in serious setting, um, I kept hearing very powerful and looking beautiful, but fashion really does support the plethora of emotions that happens in a lifetime throughout a day. and feelings powerful and strong and beautiful is just not limited to that. Yeah. Um, in Black History Month, talking about fashion, I think, and I'm glad that we are having this conversation in a way that hopefully could be a little bit deeper than just the surface, because mm-hmm. the surface is there to support what is happening inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and being of a community that is called Black community, it baffles me that at 2023, um, we are playing a role that is inspiring, interesting, intriguing, and it is um, a precursor to a lot of things happening. And yet, <clears throat> the world seems to be okay with not having us be in a position where there is enough infrastructure mm-hmm. and structure yeah. where we can make decisions that can really push at a level where it can elevate humanity as a whole. And this should not be a problem that is just a black problem. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a human problem. And I tell my little interns, kids that are so smart, that imagine an orchestra that decide to muffle an instrument and put it aside. When the symphony or the song is done, the loser is not the instrument, it's the orchestra as a whole. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And I mean, talk a little bit about that because you're right, it's a business, right? And it's a business that needs the infrastructural support of a larger industry that sometimes likes our aesthetic, but doesn't necessarily want us. I mean, absolutely. I will give you a little mini story of, I went to my first boutique to show them my collection. This was like seven years ago. And I walked in and you know my clothes, it's American sportswear, you know, to comparison to Michael Kors or Donna Karen collection, mm-hmm. which is like one of my greatest influences. But I went in the store with suits, dresses, skirts, you know, trousers. And the buyer looked at me, very famous boutique in LA and said, these are nice, but your clothes should be more urban. And mm-hmm. I just looked at her and that mm-hmm. was the first time I realized, oh, 
I'm not supposed to design clothes like this because I look like this. Right. Mm-hmm. It was the very first time. Yeah. Because I never saw fashion through the lens of urban or yeah. streetwear because that's just, I'd want to dress women and that's not what I grew yeah. up being influenced by. So, you know, it's still a barrier that needs to be broken down mm-hmm. for us to be able to not be a monolith yeah. in the industry sure. because Absolutely. it's certain things that are expected of us yeah. as black people in yeah. the fashion industry. We're just, we're supposed to make hoodies. We're supposed to make joggers, which we do. And we do it very well. And we do it the best, Yeah. but we do other things as well. Yeah. Um, and I think the biggest obstacle that we still have to overtake is not being categorized right. as a black that's, designer. That's I, right. I was just telling women's wear daily the other day. You don't tell my friends, you don't say when you describe Jason Wu in a category, you don't say Asian designer Jason right. Wu. But every time I'm written up, it's black designer Sergio mm-hmm. Hudson. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a proud black man, but yeah. I'm a designer. Yeah. It's just who I am as a person. It has nothing to do with who I am in my blood and my history. Yeah. And, well, and you're creative yeah. as well, right? Yeah. Like what you create and what you see. You know, it, it's one of the interesting things that I've heard many times is when we're trying to take a collection or, you know, and we're talking about the business of it and bringing it to the masses. Well, what if we give it more spice? What if we make it a little more black? This is what they say behind the doors. Yeah. And we've all heard it. We're not going to call out who and what, but you can also look at one of the big trends going on right now. The collaboration. The collaboration. Where did the collaboration start? They started with streetwear. Yeah. So let's let's talk about one of the famous houses like Louis Vuitton and Supreme. Yeah. They did the Louis Vuitton, Louis Vuitton Supreme collection. Do you think the women on Madison Avenue living on living on <laughs> Madison Avenue right. are running in to buy the Louis Vuitton Supreme bags? Yeah. No, they were counting on the kids. The kids. And you so and it's coming from the kids, but yeah. that's what's happening right now. All these collaborations, Adidas is collaborating yeah. with every major yeah. legacy yeah. house. So yeah. this is what we're starting to see. To see. Well, I wish we had much more time, but I'm getting the rap in my ear. Um, I appreciate all of you for being here. Uh, Jane Manuel, always appreciate <laughs> you. Omar Salam. Oh my God, you're so brilliant. Um, Sukaina is fabulous. Thank and of course, Sergio Hudson. All of you are brilliant, and I love all of everything that you create. Please make them in my size. Uh, That is tonight's readout. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.